All right, so here we are at Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to be the last week where we'll be talking about Nephilim and the sons of God and all that kind of stuff, and so hopefully we'll be uh, just kind of putting this subject to rest, at least for on Wednesday nights. I might do a bonus video uh, either tomorrow or Friday. Uh, be praying for me tomorrow. I have a dentist appointment. And so I'm, I hate dentist appointments and eye doctor all in one day. So eye doctor is not that bad, but the dentist appointment. So pray for me. But anyway, uh, so Genesis chapter 6 in verse 1 and it says, And it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And so you all know what is said about this. People, Many people believe that the sons of God here are angels and there's that uh, constant back and forth you know are these angels are these just the line of seth you know our side would claim no it's definitely the line of seth others would say no this is definitely angels but one thing that i believe proves that these is a line of seth is the fact that chapters four and five clearly are the foundation for chapter six most people when they want to talk about nephilim they start in chapter six and they ignore chapters four and five but chapters 4 and 5, everything that you see in those chapters are there for a reason. It goes through the line of Cain. It specifies different people for a reason. When we get to Seth, it's going through a line. And it's specifying things for a reason. And it's all leading up here to what we see take place in chapter 6, showing the whole world go bad. Because Genesis is ultimately a book taking us to Abraham showing us the children of Israel. In, in reality, the Old Testament is about a line, and that line ultimately is taking us to Jesus. And that's why we see so much attention focused to, on Abraham. And then we see a lot more attention focused on Israel. And then we see a later a whole bunch of attention while after it goes through several hundred years, you know, real quick, all of a sudden we see a ton of attention focused on David. And then we see a ton of attention focused on the kings, especially in the southern kingdom. Why? This is the line of Christ. It's ultimately a book about the line of Christ. So these things are all there for a reason. But if chapter 6 is just about angels and men coming together, this is just a random story thrown in the Bible. But I don't believe that's the case at all. In fact, I believe it's a massive leap to assume this is talking about angels here, especially since up to this point in the Bible... There has been no mention of angels. Okay, now cherubims are mentioned in the garden in the Garden of Eden, but angels have not been mentioned yet. Okay, so it seems like if sons of God were angels, there would be something explaining something in the scriptures, you know, defining them as being angels. But interestingly enough, though, at the end of chapter four, we do see a group of people mentioned as calling on the name of the Lord. And I believe those would be the sons of God. But there's, there's nothing leading up to this that gives any indication these are angels at all. It's literally just the title is that people just assume because they assume Job is talking about angels. But that's just a huge stretch. All right. So first off, I think if we actually just pay attention to what this chapter actually says, we'll see exactly what's going on. So first off, why does it say the daughters, you know, or why does it, why doesn't it say the daughters of God married the sons of men? You know, and then some would say, well, that's because there's no female angels. 
So that's why it specifically says the sons of God married the daughters of men. But here's the thing about that. In the Bible, it was almost always this way because in these days, men were associated with nations. They were associated with nations, cities, and men, you never see men joining up with another nation. Okay, that's it's not that's not something you see. It's but you all often would see them taking the daughters of another nation. For example, often when they would go and they would defeat a city, many times they would keep the women. Why? They would keep the women so they could have children with them so they could expand their nation. But you never really see men, you know, you, you never see it going the other way. Okay? That's just not typically the way things work, especially in the Bible. Uh, it, and we see too in the Bible, especially in the book of Genesis, it was very important that you know, the man's name and his line and his inheritance was very important. That's why they would often raise up seed to their, with their brother's wife. If their brother died not having any children, his brother would go in and he would have a child with his brother's wife. Why? Because that was very important to him. So you weren't, you're not, you weren't going to see, you know, a group of men go and then join up with the daughters of another nation and then become a part of that nation. You just don't see that in the Bible. That's not something that you ever see. So, you know, there's no way for anyone to biblically define angels as sons of God, especially just with Genesis, using any type of, you know, consistent hermeneutic. All right. And, you know, hermeneutic, that's just kind of a, uh, a good way to explain that. That's just kind of a method you use to interpret the scriptures, something that's consistent, too. You know, there's, there's, we ought to use proper hermeneutics when we're studying the Bible, but it all goes out the window if these are angels, if you're going to interpret that way. So, um, first off, how could we define the sons of God as the saved or the sons of Seth with the scriptures? All right, using proper hermeneutics. And first off, is because, you know, it was Seth's line where men began to call on the Lord. In chapter 5, the genealogy starts with Adam, not Seth. Starts with Adam, and while the Cain genealogy, it starts with Cain, not Adam. Okay? And there's a reason for that. And Adam is specifically referred to as the Son of God in Luke three thirty-eight. So you know you can say, and a lot of people say, well, all are the sons of God, but that is wrong. And we looked at First John chapter three last week, where it said, "Behold, now are we the sons of God." And it does not yet appear what we shall be. And in that same chapter, it refers to Cain, who was of that wicked one. So we see that Cain, he was of someone else. He was of the devil. Where, you know, Abel, he was of God. You know, he was a son of God. But Abel never had any children. But Seth did. So I believe it's, it's consistent to interpret the sons of God as saved people in this passage with the rest of the Bible and how we interpret the whole Bible. So look at verse 3. So it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now what God's doing here, God has now given man a hundred and twenty years before he wipes them out. But understand, this thing of the sons of God marrying the daughters of men, I believe it went on for centuries before God declares this sentence of a hundred and twenty years and then you're wiped out. And so verse 4 says, there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them, 
the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Now, let's take a close look at this first. But before we do, let's look at a few other Bible versions, okay? Because you wonder, you know, where do people come up with a lot of, you know, this goofiness? Okay, for example, many pre-tribbers will take 2 Thessalonians 2 and they'll teach that the people there thought they missed the rapture, okay? But the reason they think that is because other versions say the day of the Lord has already come. But is that what the King James says? No, it says that the day of Christ is at hand. So that does, it, does, it doesn't mean they missed the rapture, yet that's what they teach because they're listening to people who use other versions of the Bible. Many people who teach the Nephilim doctrine teach that because they're listening to people who teach other versions of the Bible. Now, a King James only Baptist isn't going to go to these other versions, but they often get their interpretation from these other versions because that's who they're listening to. And it says in the NIV, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. So, uh, and I forgot what version this was. I didn't write it down. It says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. So other versions use that term Nephilim instead of giants. And if you look up the word giant, it, the Hebrew word, and I might not say it exactly right, is Nephil. Okay? So Nephil is, you know, well, you know, that gives it some credibility, right? Well, here's the thing too. A lot of people teach that Nephil means to fall. So like fallen ones. Like fallen angels. Okay? And I haven't found any evidence of that. In fact, if you look up that word, that, that term giant, it means bully or tyrant. Okay? Which kind of makes sense because if you're a lot bigger than everybody else, you know, you're going to be a mighty person. You know, you're going to be well known. You're going to be that man of renown. And you're going to be able to, you know, conquer people easier. Isn't it, isn't it nice when you're bigger than somebody? Who wants to fight somebody bigger than them? You know, we all want to fight the little guy, right? You know, that, that, that's, that's what we'd all prefer. So just notice how these versions, they just call them Nephilim. You know, they just completely change the name. And obviously a lot of people are reading that or they're listening to people who are getting their interpretation from reading these other versions. So some through their inability, though, to, to read, believe that the giants were the offspring of this union of angels and women and that's obviously how they got so big. That's how they got to be 300 feet tall, things like that. And I was—I I, I probably should say this for tomorrow, but folks, the idea of giants being 300 feet tall is just ridiculous. There's no biblical evidence for that. And what they'll do is they'll go to, I think it's in Amos, where it talks about how their height was as the cedars. Okay? And once again, the Bible is a powerful book, but it's not a magical book. Just because the Bible says... People were as tall like the cedars does not mean everybody these people were as tall as the cedars. It's speaking figuratively. Okay? Cedars stick out in the forest. Okay? If you're going to a forest or if you're looking over a forest and there's cedars in there, they're going to stick out. Why? Because they're much taller than the rest of the trees. And if you are a giant, okay, you're going to stick out in a crowd of people like a cedar. It's just, it's figurative. That's all it is. But people, they just want to go, they want to go off in the left field and some of this stuff. And it's, it's really foolish. 
But let's let's look at this verse and find out what this is saying right here. Okay, so it says there were giants in the earth in those days. In what days? In the days when the sons of God are marrying the daughters of men. Okay, there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, after there were giants in the earth in those days, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. So the offspring that came from this union of what I believe the line of Seth and the line of Cain, these people became mighty men. They became men of renown. They became these well-known people. And notice too how it mentions them being mighty. Okay, Now, why, why does that matter? Why is this mentioned? Doesn't mighty sound like a good thing? A man of renown, doesn't that sound like a good thing? But this is showing how these men were becoming warriors. Okay? This is this isn't a time, you know, understand that it's not you know, war is not a good thing. Okay? God gave would give these people their own inheritance. This is showing how the world is about to get filled with violence. So we have we have these mighty men. It's a reference to the violence. So uh you know it it mentioned you know, being a warrior often sounds good. But this is not a good thing because verse 11 mentions that the earth was also corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. That was the major sin that was going on. So it says in verse 5, you know, the great sin was not so much, I believe, the mixed offspring, but it was the sin. It was the violence that was going on the earth in those days. Because you see constantly in the Bible, too, where God warned them about intermarrying. And the problem with intermarrying is not so much that God was worried about like corrupted bloodlines and things. The reason God didn't like it is because they would often learn their ways. You know, Solomon loved many strange women. And what happened? He served their gods. He's building all altars to Ashtoreth. He's doing all these wicked things. God did not want them learning their ways. And it's very clear here that you've got Cain's line. They're the ones that learn how to do the metalworking and all that stuff. They're the ones making the weapons and things. You've got Seth's line. They have no need for that kind of thing. They're living at peace. They're following God. They're doing good. But now all of a sudden when they are intermingling with them, their offspring are these mighty men. They're starting to use these weapons and things. They're starting to use these these instruments of destruction. And they're now getting involved in the fighting and the world's getting filled with violence. So this is the wickedness. This is the wickedness that is highlighted in this chapter. Okay, Not, you know, mixed, you know, angels and humans. That's not what the problem is. It's the violence. It says in verse 6, uh, or verse 5, And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. So notice God repenting here. This is great evidence of what repentance is. And it's evidence, too, that man has a free will. Okay? Triggered some Calvinists this week, uh, you know, because that clip that my brother Austin put out, you know, from my message, accusing him of being idolatrous. And I had somebody just call me all kinds of names for believing man has a free will. But man has a free will. Okay? 
And God changed his mind. It repented the Lord. It grieved him in his heart that he had made a man. Why? Because he didn't like what man did. Well, if God didn't like what man did, God should have programmed him to do something else. But obviously man has a free will, doesn't he? And, it, and unfortunately, man went the wrong direction here. I don't know what Calvinists do with that passage. But anyway, but notice it says in verse 8, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, I, I almost hate dignifying a lot of these things, too. Because, once again, remember, not everybody that teaches the Nephilim doctrine is as big of a nut job as some. Okay? There's all different levels of crazy that people go to here. For example, some people even teach that the humans and the animals or the angels and the animals were even intermingling. And that's where centaurs and all those things come from. And it's like they teach that it's actually real things. And so it's like, and you know, I hate even dignifying that type of thing because, you know, God's destroying all flesh. Why? Because all flesh was corrupted. There were, there were hardly any pure breed animals left. And so God just had to wipe everything out because it keeps mentioning all flesh. And we're going to talk about why it mentions all flesh, but here's why God's going to destroy all flesh because all flesh was going to die in the flood. It was, it was going to kill all the flesh, all the humans, all the animals were all going to die on the flood except for what God on the boat. That's why it's mentioning that. Okay, It's not mentioning that because all the flesh was just all corrupted because you couldn't find any pure breed humans and pure breed animals anywhere. And not, not everybody teaches that kind of foolishness, but the, that is the type of foolishness, foolishness that comes from this doctrine, and it's not right. And it mentions, too, that Noah was perfect in his generations. Okay? perfect or complete in his generations noah didn't have any angel dna okay? noah had noah was a pure breed human where the rest of humanity was all corrupted but what does that mean noah was perfect in his generations why, why is that mentioned all right so first off notice how it mentions noah begat three sons sham ham and japheth we already showed last week how japheth was the oldest not shem but Shem is focused on. Shem gets more attention. Why? Because he's a lot. He's where Abraham came from. Okay? He's where Jesus came from. So verse eleven says, "The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Filled with violence, not mixed offspring. Violence. That is what's going on here. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way." Upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Okay, so why does it keep mentioning flesh? Right? Remember what God said in the beginning of the chapter? My spirit shall not always strive with man, because that he also is flesh. Okay? It mentioned that. So the reason that matters is because man who is made from the dirt, has no right to go against God. Look at what it says in uh, Genesis 3, verse 19. It says, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. 
So notice that right there. Man is just, we're just a creation of God. We're made from the dust of the ground. And here Adam went and felt that he could go ahead and defy God. And you know what God did? God reminded him, he said, dust thou art. And unto dust shalt thou return. One of these days, these corruptible bodies are going to turn into dust. Why? We are mortal man. We are flesh. Who are we to go against God? Turn over to Romans chapter 9. And verse 20 says, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the power potter over the clay or the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Who are we? What are we to go against God? Who was man that it thought that it could just go and corrupt its way before God and just go and fill the world with violence? Because think about this too. What, you know, let's take into consideration what we've read so far in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 6, by the time we're to Genesis chapter 6, what sins have we really seen on the earth? Okay? Now, we've seen, of course, Adam and Eve just disobeying God and eating the fruit and then getting the knowledge of good and evil. We see murder with Cain and Abel. And with Lamech, we see him marrying two wives and we see him killing two people. These are really the only sins that we have seen so far. And then here we see in Genesis chapter 6, you know, sons of God marrying the daughters of men. We see marriages that aren't good. And we see violence. So do you see how, you know, the sins that are in the earth, they, they, they've been pretty consistent so far. It's been pretty much all about the same thing. And notice that this is man defying God. This is man going against God. And God is angry with them and saying, you're not going to do this. You're not just going to do your own thing. You're not going to defy me. You know what? I'm going to end you. I'm going to destroy all flesh. Why? Because it's the flesh that's corrupting its way before God. And so God's going to destroy all flesh with the flood. Well, why doesn't it mention the plants and all those things? Because they hadn't sinned. They hadn't done. And you know, those things actually didn't all get destroyed in the flood, did they? Okay. Those, you know, plants and all that, they can survive underwater. But you know what? And God didn't mention fish either. Okay. And some of the real weirdos will even talk about how that's how mermaids and all that stuff comes from. All right. And, you know, once again, not everybody that believes that. In Nephilim, teaches stuff like that, but some people do. Okay? But the flesh, it, the reason that keeps getting mentioned, because that's what's going to die in this flood. That's what's not going to survive except for what goes on the ark. This is not a reference to just flesh just being all contaminated because of angelic DNA. That's just, that's just foolishness. And people often, too, they will use this teaching as proof. You know, this is where the stories from Greek mythology came from you know all these stories of greek gods you've got hercules who's half god half man you've got you know you've got the mermaids you've got all these centaurs and all these things you know that all that all had to start somewhere that's what they'll say that all had to start somewhere here's where it started y'all want to know where it started it started in the perverted mind of man okay if it all if greek mythology had to have origins based on reality well then you know what else had to have basis on reality superman batman 
that all had, you know, guys wearing underwear outside their pants and flying around, things like that. You know, it had to start somewhere. You know, it didn't invent, you know, just, you know, man's not capable of just thinking up stuff like that. Yes, we are. Okay? I mean, Star Trek has some basis in reality. And Star Wars. No. People make things up. People have been making up stories since the beginning of time. So that isn't proof of anything. But yet people will use things like that as proof. No. All these things that are mentioned, they're there for a reason. And it's the violence that's mentioned, not mixed offspring. So, uh, so verse 14, he says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, and the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower second and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life, from under heaven and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy son's wives with thee. So this line that we have been following ultimately is going to Jesus, but now he's establishing his covenant with Noah. Okay. Now, why is it mentioning this? Obviously, Noah is the obvious choice since only his family is going to be surviving. But remember, back. let's go back a few chapters when Cain and Abel offer their offerings. Remember what God told Cain? If thou doest well, thou shalt be accepted. And if not, sin lieth at the door. And it said, and thy younger brother, or you'll rule over your younger brother, is what God said. But you know what? God had respect unto Abel and his offering, and God chose Abel. Why? God is choosing a line that his seed is going to come from, the seed that was promised in Genesis chapter 3. God originally chose Abel. Cain killed Abel. Seth is born. Eve says, God had appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. Seth ends up replacing Abel. So Seth's line, it ends up getting corrupted. Seth's line ends up sinning. But Noah is perfect in his generations. What does that mean? It means, remember, it was in Enoch's day when I believe things started going bad. Enoch, the seventh from Adam. But you know, you had Enoch, you had Methuselah, you had Lamech, and you had Noah. What I believe that means is at least those guys did not intermarry with the line of Cain. Those guys weren't involved in all that junk, all the violence and things that was going on. So while the rest of the world was all getting corrupted, now, does anybody think Enoch only had one son? No, Enoch probably had multiple kids. Methuselah would have had multiple kids. Lamech would have had multiple kids. But by the, with those guys, the line is pure. And by the time you get to Noah, that's all there is. If Noah had any brothers, they were probably participating in what was going on. It was only Noah's line. So God tells Noah, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. And then it goes to Noah. But then, remember what happens? After the flood, 
the whole world was of one language and one speech. God ends up confounding the language. The people are scattered. And then what does God do? God goes to Abraham, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. And then you've got Isaac and Ishmael. You've got Jacob and Esau. See how God keeps picking somebody? And these people he's picking is ultimately who the Messiah is going to come from. Because Jesus is the focal point. So we're seeing now Noah being chosen. We see Noah being singled out, even though he probably had multiple brothers, because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man. So we're again, we're seeing a focus coming on a specific line. So, and God is going to now do this through Noah, as specified. But he hasn't specified the sons yet, which of his sons the line is going to come through. And we know Ham got canceled out. And we'll get to that. I don't want to get it, you know, ahead of myself, but we all know what happened there with Ham. But anyway, verse 19 says, And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort, shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. Of fowls after their kind, of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee, of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. So interestingly enough, it was noted about Noah that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You know what? Noah got saved just like we got saved. I think that's an interesting thing too. And we'll talk a little bit more about how Noah got saved maybe next week, There's because there's weird teaching about that. A lot of weird teaching with symbolism in the ark and everything. But now, now that we've shown clearly that chapters 4 and 5 and 6 all go together, let's go ahead and take time to debunk some of these verses that people use to prove this perverted doctrine, you know, and show, you know, because so, I think we've shown without any doubt what happened here in chapter 6. This was the line of Seth and the line of Cain coming together. Okay? And once again, Go listen to anybody teaching the Nephilim doctrine. They will all start in Genesis 6. They will ignore chapters 4 and 5. They will have no commentary on 4 and 5. They will have they, they have nothing. Why that story of Lamech's in there? Why the things are mentioned, they're mentioned. They've got nothing. They start on chapter 6, and then they're going to go to Job. And then just we're just going to assume... That those are the sons of God because they're presenting himself before the Lord, but it could be other things. They'll go to, so then they'll go to Job thirty-eight seven. Everybody who teaches that is going to go to Job thirty-eight seven, and they're going to go and answer you know the questions that nobody can answer. You know, that, you know they all you know nobody knows the answers to all those questions God asked Job except for Job thirty-eight seven. They've got that all figured out. They've got that nailed down. That pro- no, that doesn't prove anything. So let's go ahead and look at some of these verses that people will use and attach it to Genesis chapter 6. So first off, Jude chapter 1. Jude chapter 1. It says in verse 5, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not, and the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. 
That's when they went and married the daughters of men and had children with them. Are you sure about that? Because it doesn't mention that's what they did. It says the angels that kept not their first estate. What does that mean? Well, estate, it means rank or position. Okay? It means rank or position. First Chronicles 17, 17 says, and this was yet a small thing, um, and yet this was a small thing in thine eyes, O God, for thou hast also spoken of thy servant's house for a great while to come, and hast regarded me according to the estate of a man of high degree, O Lord God. So we see that estate, it is, it's like a rank. It's like a, it's like a position that you have. So you could say, well, when they, when, you know, this happened when they married the daughters of men, but you could also say it was when the angels followed Lucifer. You know, because if they obviously would have had a position in heaven, they would have had a rank, they would have had an estate, but then whenever they said, we're going to follow Lucifer, that wasn't what God had commissioned them to do. That was not, we know that happened. Okay, We know for sure that happened. Well, that's not what it says in Jude. Well, it doesn't say they married the daughters of men either. So we have a real clear, you know, everybody knows, and, and, and even that's not super clear. We see that a dragon drew a third part of the stars, and most people would say that that is reference to uh, Satan uh, getting a third of the angels to follow him. I think that would make a whole lot more sense than them just marrying the daughters of men, seeing that that is them leaving their position. Remember, it was Lucifer who he exalted himself in his heart. He didn't like his position. He wanted to be sit on the throne. He wanted to be like the Most High. He didn't like the estate that he had. He wanted to be promoted. It, that was not God's will for him. So he ended up getting cast down. And I believe a third of the angels went with him. I think that clearly would be the angels leaving their first estate. So once again, though, they're just inserting a fact there based on what they've, you know, they just decided what's true and then they're just going to tell you that's what that means because they want to show how they use a lot of Bible. But Jude 1 proves nothing. Here's what Jude 1 is about. This is why he even mentions the angels. It's very simple. If God didn't spare the angels, if God punished the angels, you better believe he's going to punish these false prophets. Don't think these false prophets are going to get away with it. God didn't even let the angels that sin get away with what they did. That's what it's all ultimately about. So if you're going to get your doctrine, anybody that would go to Jude to prove anything in the Nephilim doctrine is once again, they have decided what's already true and they're just going to try to look like they're using Bible. Okay, Even if that's true, even if this happened, it is inappropriate to use Jude to prove it. Jude is not talking about what they did. It's just telling us God punished the angels that sinned. He's going to punish false prophets. So, 2 Peter 2, it's the exact same thing in 2 Peter 2. Look what it says there in verse 4. <clears throat> For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So right there, we see the angels that sinned. That was them in, in the days of the flood. Because it's also mentioned in 2 Peter 2, God also talks about the day, you know, the days of Noah and the days of the flood. Yes, because again, in 2 Peter 2, it's talking about how God's going to judge the wicked. So you know what God does? You know what Peter's doing here? He's bringing up big events where God did major judgment, and it's hard to ignore the flood. 
when we're talking about major judgment. There has never been a bigger judgment than the flood. That's the biggest one there's ever been. God's not going to leave that out. And God's not going to leave out, you know, talking about the angels, you know, that got cast down to hell. That was a big thing too. So that proves nothing. Second Peter 2 proves nothing. I believe, I personally believe Second Peter 2 and Jude 1 is talking about when the angels followed after Lucifer. But either way, that doesn't prove it. Okay. But we do know, at least know that event happened based on other passages in the Bible. This here, though, absolutely does not prove that it was angels intermarrying with the daughters of men. It's not what it says at all. So, uh, you know, Revelation 9.13, uh, let's go ahead and look at that. It says, In the sixth angel sound, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, which had the trumpet, loose the four angels, which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year, for to slay the third part of men. Now, I, if I wanted, I could say that the angels that sinned were these four angels. Never thought about that? We've got four angels bound in the great river Euphrates. Okay, We've got... Alright, so you have two in the Garden of Eden. You have cherubims. I don't know if cherubims and angels are always the same. That were supposed to keep the way... You know, to you know, keep them from getting to the tree of life, and they were there in every direction. Probably four of them. You know, if I wanted, I could get up and I could say, you know what? There was a time when those four angels left. They they were supposed to be there, and because of that, God punished them, and He bound them in the great river Euphrates, which is where the Garden of Eden is. And you say, that's really goofy. That's not even in the Bible. No, it's not. But you know, at the same time. We do have four angels bound the river Euphrates, don't we? But does that mean I'm allowed to just make up a story now of how it happened? No, we don't just get to make up stories. But understand, too, a lot of these things that people are looking at, a lot of these stories people go to come from other books. Okay. Now, if somebody finds a book out there that tells us what these four angels did that got bound in the great river Euphrates... Do we, does this passage in the Bible now prove that book to be reliable? No, it absolutely does not. It absolutely does not. And understand too, this Nephilim doctrine, this isn't, the Nephilim doctrine is not a new doctrine. It's been around for a long time. Okay? And, you know, we have the book of Enoch that's out there. The book of Enoch, it gives credibility, or it, I wouldn't say it gives credibility, but it teaches that angels married men, or the daughters of men. Okay? Now, does the fact that we disagree with that teaching prove that Enoch, the book of Enoch, is a fraud? No, it doesn't. Okay? But, does the book of Enoch prove that the Nephilim doctrine is true? No, it also does not. Do you all realize stuff like that shouldn't even be factored in? Okay, but people go to what they want to. So what's what's happening though, with many weird doctrines, things like the doctrine of Abraham's bosom, I've shown before how that weird teaching came from an apocryphal book. There's an apocryphal book that gives credibility to that, that all the verses that people would use to prove, you know, the Abraham's bosom doctrine, you can find it in this apocryphal book. Now, I shouldn't go and say, 
proof that that apocryphal book is a fraud is the fact that it teaches, you know, Abraham's bosom like the dispensationalists teach it. Okay? That, it's, in, it's inappropriate to say that, but at the same time, too, it would be inappropriate to use that to prove the Abraham's bosom doctrine. I'm just saying that shouldn't be even be factored in. We should use just what the Bible actually teaches. And if you use just what the Bible actually teaches, you know what you, you're not going to find this Nephilim doctrine. It's just not going to be there. That kind of teaching, though, it's coming from these other books, and other people are taking that, and they are ter- interpreting the Bible in light of that. And there's no way to be honest with the Scriptures and to con- you, con- you interpret the Bible consistently and say that these are angels marrying women. There's absolutely no way to do that. But people have already decided these things are true. And so because of that, you know, <clears throat> they're interpreting the Bible that way. It's wrong to do that. Now let's go back to uh, Genesis 4. Let me show you something here. Okay? Because when I, you know, this passage of uh, Lamech, okay, that I think is a very important passage. Um, it's not a super clear scripture. It's, it's a little confusing. But let's, let's look at it in verse 19. Because I'm going to show you, this is what's happening. Okay? This is what's happening with this Nephilim doctrine. Nobody would admit, or nobody would ever admit and say, I'm getting this doctrine from extra biblical books. All right? Nobody would admit that. But they are. Reading that stuff, it does in affect your thinking on these passages. Okay? Now, it says, And Lamech took in him two wives... The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. Ada bare Jabel, and, right, and his brother's name was Jubal. And then jump down to 22, and Zillah, she also bare Tubal Cain. And Lamech said unto his wives, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. I'm just kind of skimming through this. For I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. Okay? <clears throat> now, that's kind of a tough passage, isn't it? Now, I believe this is showing, once again, how that line became lawless. He marries two wives, and he kills two people, and he declares himself exempt. They're saying, if Cain should be avenged sevenfold, truly lame at seventy and sevenfold. Okay? Now, that sounds pretty good if we just read the Bible, right? But what if I told you what this is actually talking about is during this time... You had Cain's line started marrying multiple wives. They would marry one to bear their children, and they would marry another one just for fun. That They would make drink a drink that would cause the women to be barren. That way they could maintain their figure. And so he marries Ada. She bears two sons. He also marries Zillah. She marries a son and calls him Tubal-Cain, which means son of my confusion. She wasn't supposed to get pregnant. She had drank the drink that makes him go barren, you know, and yet she still had a child. And so Lamech, one day, when he was out hunting, he's old, he's almost going blind, he's got Tubal Cain with him, and he's trying to hunt. Tubal Cain sees what he believes is an animal off in the distance. And so he tells him which way to point. He files an arrow in that direction, hits it. He gets up closer to it. Turns out it's not an animal. It's a man. It's Cain. And Lamech has killed Cain, who now he's supposed to be avenged sevenfold. 
And you know, Lamech was so upset, he goes and smites his hands together, doesn't see his son standing right there in front of him, hits him in the head and kills his son. That's the young man. They slayed to his own hurt. And so Lamech's wives are naturally mad at him, thinking, well, you're, you're going to have to die. You know, you killed two people. But he's saying it was an accident. I didn't mean to do it. And so if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. Now, does that story fit with the facts that we see? Could that have happened? Based on what we have here in Genesis 4, could that have happened? Yes, it very well could have happened. And maybe that's why it stopped right there because it went until the end of Cain's life when Cain died. Is Could that have possibly happened based on this passage right here? Did, so is the reason Lamech said this is just because he's saying it was an accident. I didn't mean to do it. Or is it like what I'm saying because it's just showing how this line got lawless. You say, well, I like that other story better. It's got cool facts in it I never knew before. Well, it, you know, and, and the thing is, some people would interpret this as this was an accident. That's why he said that. But if that's the case, that story makes no sense. Why would God just throw in a story about a guy who just accidentally killed a couple people? Why, why would that even be in there? You know, the, there, would be, there would be no point to that at all. But here's the thing. Some people would interpret it that way because they've been reading the book of Jasher which is where all that came from. They've been reading the book of Jasher, so all of a sudden now, that's what they think. And in the book of Jasher, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, the line of Cain, and the line, it was the line of Seth saw the line of Cain, and the women in Cain's line were better looking than their wives. And so they started getting wives from there too, doing this whole practice of having, you know, we'll have the women in our line bear our children, but we're going to go get some of these daughters of Cain just for fun. That's what happens in the book of Jasher. Okay? Now, once again, that shouldn't be factored in. But if you read that stuff, it can often affect how you interpret the Scripture. And I'm telling you, that's what's happening to these people. They have no consistent hermeneutic when it comes to this stuff. They have learned these things from another book and they're wanting to find a way to make it fit the Bible. And I, I hate that, folks. We are not supposed to just go to the Bible to find what we want. Okay? You know, don't go just decide something's true and then look for proof in the Bible. If you just decided, you know what, I want to prove one of these days we're going to live on other planets. You know, if you do, you're going to go to the book of Isaiah and when it just talks about in, you know, the increase of his kingdom, all that means getting bigger and bigger. That means we've obviously got to expand other planets. That's just ridiculous. There's nothing in the Bible that actually teaches that. But yet people are always doing that. They want to prove some point. They want to prove something about aliens or some weird thing. And then they just go and they find an obscure verse in the Bible. And then they just run with it and they build doctrines around it. And that is what has happened with this Nephilim doctrine. I'm sure you could find a lot of ancient writings that teach this kind of thing. Because the Greeks probably messed with some of those old scriptures. You know, they, you know, I, I, I imagine some of those, you know, ancient Greek manuscripts, the bad ones, they might have put that in there, you know, to make it fit their Greek mythology. But we've got to learn to just, you know, let's see what the Bible actually has to say. And sometimes just admit it doesn't say as much about some things as we would like it to. And while you might be fascinated with the Nephilim doctrine, no matter which way you spin it, 
there's like almost there's there's literally nothing in the Bible about it. And tomorrow too, I'm going to show you. I found, there's this website where it has this whole list of verses that prove the Nephilim doctrine, and it's ridiculous the ones that they're trying to use. It's proving these people are not reading the Bible looking saying, what does God have for me to learn? They're reading the Bible looking for the Nephilim in here. You know, let's look. And so everything becomes about that. And that, people do that on a lot of different subjects, and it's not right. It's out, it's out of line. So anyway, if we read the Bible and we interpret it for what it, it says by itself, you're not going to get the Nephilim doctrine. And so, anyway, with that, I hope that was helpful. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for all your blessings. Dear God, I pray that this uh, message was a help and a blessing. I pray you'll help us to uh, stop going to the Bible looking for what we want, but just help us to go to the Bible looking for what you want for us from that passage. Help us not to read into things. Help us not go into, to be reading other books that are going to affect our thinking on these subjects. I pray that we'll just be loyal to the Scriptures and what they actually say. In your name we pray. Amen.